Well, good morning to everybody. I'm encouraged by the presence of all of you this morning. Some of you knew I was going to be preaching this morning, and you came anyway, and I appreciate that. Um, I don't know how long this lesson is, um, so we're going to get right into it without uh, too much introductory. ...of the lesson, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 16... In order to get the context for the parable in John 10, we have to look pretty thoroughly at chapter 9. The Lord had opened the eyes of a blind man in chapter 9 who was born blind and who at this time was over 40 years old. He was a beggar, having no way of sustaining himself except by begging And he was an object of pity and was well known by the neighbors who saw him daily begging. Now the Lord with his disciples came along and they saw this man in the course of things. And we'll not take time to deal with their dialogue here. But the Lord spat upon the ground and he took that spittle having mixed it with clay and anointed the eyes of this man who was blind and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He did that, and when he did, he could see. Marvel of marvels. Now when this man came back among his neighbors, they were perplexed about what they were seeing, and among themselves they said, some of them did, it's true he looks like that man, like that beggar that we knew, But that fellow was blind. And some of the neighbors said, that's true, but no question about it. This is that same man. And there was some controversy among the people in that area as to whether he really was the man that they knew to be a blind man who could now see. Now he offered his own testimony. And he said to them, and that ought to have settled the point, he said, I am he. He had no doubts about who he was. He was blind, and he knew that. And now he could see, and he knew that. Let it be kept in your mind that the Jewish authorities took a very great interest in this Jesus of Nazareth and these claims that he made that he was the Son of God. And they were particularly concerned in these supernatural things that he did as signs to confirm the message. And particularly in this case, they were interested to examine it because the Lord had healed the man on the Sabbath day. And they reasoned that this itself being a violation of law in their faulty concept of it, that this man claimed to be the Son of God, and he couldn't be the Son of God because he broke the Sabbath. He sinned. And therefore, they're interested in knowing, first of all, did a miracle really take place? Was the man's eyes really opened? And so they called the man in to examine him. And he told them precisely how it happened, just what we've already talked about and what John records for for us. And then they sent for the man's parents, and they asked them, This is your son? Yes. He was blind? Yes, he was born blind. 
He's been blind all these years. Yes, sir. Then how do you explain the fact that he can see? Well, they said, he's of age. Ask him. And they wouldn't say any more about it. So they called the man a second time to examine him. And it sort of provoked him this time. He said, I've told you one time. Why do you ask me a second time? Do you want to be his disciple? He shouldn't have said that. That so irritated these men that they let him know right quickly, we're the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke through Moses. This man we don't know anything about. And then he said something else that was pretty impertinent to that court. He fired right back at them and said, It's a strange thing that you don't know where he is from. You don't know anything about him. You say you know that God spoke to Moses, but you don't know anything about this man. And he said, Let me tell you, since the world began, no one ever opened the eyes of a man or heard of the eyes of a man who was born blind being opened. But this man did that. And you say you don't know where he is from. That was the final straw. They literally threw him out bodily. It says they cast him out. That's exactly what it said. Bodily threw him out. Now, when he was thrown out, you pick up the story there in uh, John 35. Jesus heard that. They had cast him out, and finding him, he said, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, that is, right now. He hadn't seen him before, because the Lord had left him before he ever washed, and had his eyes opened. But now he sees him. Thou hast both seen him, and he it is that speaketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. Not hard for him to come to faith about it. I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus then said, For judgment came I into this world, that they that see not may see, and they that see may become blind. Now, the people that heard the Lord, remember there were some Pharisees present, because it said those of the Pharisees who were with him, they're going along with the Lord now, they're listening and observing. They heard what he said to that man healed of blindness. I came into the world that people who do not see, and he's not talking about physical blindness, people who do not know that they may know, and they may see and may understand. I came to open their eyes, not the physical eyes, but the mind. And by the same token, it had the effect for people who did not want testimony. It had the effect of closing their eyes, closing their minds. And the Pharisees understood that. And they that were following along with him raised a question, They said, are we also blind? And you can sense the sarcasm in their question. Are we blind? You catch now, if you're in tune, 
they got the point. This man whose eyes physically had been opened and had been led not only to physically see, but to believe and to understand that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah. Here is a man whose eyes have been opened indeed, not just these eyes, but these eyes and these eyes. And Jesus said, I came that those that see not may see, and those that see, think they see, may be blind. Now they understood that. And the Pharisees said, are we also blind? You mean to say that we are blind because we don't believe you are the Messiah? Get the point. That's exactly what's being said here. You say we're blind. Listen to what the Lord said to them. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, that is, if you really didn't know, if you really didn't know, if you'd had no opportunity to know, then he said you would have no sin. That is, no sin in particular of which we speak, not meaning no sin at all. But he's talking about the sin of not believing that he is the Messiah. He said if you didn't have a chance to know, If you'd had no opportunity to know, then you would have no sin in not believing. And that's what he's saying. Then he goes on, you would have no sin, but now you say, we see, we know, but they didn't. Therefore, he said, your sin remains. That's exactly what he's talking about. Those that see, we see. We know you're not the Christ. We know you're not the Messiah. Now, with that background, the man whose eyes have been opened and said, Lord, I believe, and a group of Pharisees who said, don't believe a word of it. Don't believe a word of it. Now, those Jews were looking for Messiah. These who didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah were expecting one, They're just saying, we don't believe that you're the one. Now, John 10 is what the Lord said to those people. That's what John 10 is all about. We're just listening in. Remember, he's not talking to us at all. He's talking to them. It wasn't to us. We're reading somebody else's mail. And as he talks to them... He has some things to say that are very interesting. And so we'll check that out. And that's the focus of our lesson this morning. He starts out in verse 1 of chapter 10, Verily, verily, and this is a way that John expresses him, some say most assuredly, but verily, verily is a way um, that he expresses himself quite often. And the word verily means of a truth, something truly. But in repeating the word, It is truth most important. It's a double word. Saying it twice is emphasizing the importance of it. It's a Hebrewism. And I was going to go over some other examples. Lord, Lord, Rabbi, Rabbi, but we're we're not going to spend time with that. You get the idea. He uses that Hebrewism to establish the fact that I'm going to tell you a truth, and this is a very important truth. So verse 1, I say unto you that he that entereth not by the door into the fold of the sheep, he climbeth up some other way. The same is a thief and a robber. 
But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. When he has put forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follows him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they didn't understand what the parable was talking about. They're missing the point. You remember what a parable is. Sometimes a simple way of saying it is it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's the putting together of two Latin words, para and balo. Para meaning alongside or beside, and balo is where we get our word ball, a ball, something to be thrown. A parable, parabolo, is a story that is thrown down beside a truth that is to be received. So he takes this story that they would have been somewhat familiar with and throws it next to this truth. And so what is that truth to be received? He then proceeds to another point related to this illustration, but we're not going to look at that yet in, in verses 7 and following. He says, He that entereth by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. In these first 16 verses of John 10, the Lord is going to tell the people how they will know Messiah when they see him. That's all. That's what it's all about. How would you know him? They've said, we don't believe you're the one. There is one, but you're not him. How would you know him if you saw him? And the Lord bores straight into that proposition. He says, the one who enters by the door is the shepherd. That's the Messiah. That's the one you're looking for. And the term shepherd here could be have quotation marks because he's talking about the Messiah. But in the figure, in the imagery, he speaks of the shepherd and the people as if they were sheep. And it's a sheep and a shepherd and a sheepfold and a porter. And we need to get some terminology straight. How would you know Messiah when he came? And that's very important for us today also. It's not just some story we're listening in on that has no impact on us. We need to know and be able to identify the Messiah. Remember Jesus said, Except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. That's what he said back in the 8th chapter of John, verse 24. Without faith in Christ... No man can be saved. But I ask you, if a man says, I believe with all of my heart, that is without any reservations, no mental reservations whatsoever, I believe with all of my heart that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, I believe that. Why? Did you ever go down to bedrock and answer why? How do you believe him? How do you know that you believe? Oh, I just believe. No, you don't. No, you don't. There isn't a way on earth that you could believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, without evidence. No way. And I've talked to people like that. They're like, well, I just believe. Well, there's no way you can believe unless you have the evidence to believe. And that's precisely what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 
are all about. How you could know the Christ. And I'll tell you, in an age of doubt and skepticism that we live in, with the earth falling apart, with the social order in disruption, with men's hearts hardening under pressure, how on earth can we cling to the Savior and know Him as the Savior if we don't even know who He is? No, we have to have some solid substratum to build our faith upon. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. These are written, John says in chapter 20, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And Luke says basically the same thing in uh, chapter 24 and verse 46. Thus it is written, it was written and the Christ came fulfilling, that he would suffer, be raised from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all, all the nations. It is written. He fulfilled what was written. So what is written becomes the criteria of who is the shepherd. And let's get back to the parable. The true shepherd enters in by the door into the sheepfold. The porter knows him and opens the door. The man that climbs up some other way is not the true shepherd. Now we've got three things briefly that we need to talk about. In the time in which the Lord lived and spoke, people uh, who kept sheep kept them in a sheepfold. And in the more elaborate ones, it was a corral where the sheep were placed for security against predators and thieves. And at night, the shepherd, the owner of the sheep, would put the sheep into the sheepfold and he would post a night watchman, a custodian, there's different words for it, a porter, um, to guard the door, a gatekeeper, some versions say. That's the porter in the American Standard Version that I'm using. And it was the business of that custodian, that porter, to keep people out of the sheepfold. They could not get to the sheep through the door because the night watchman was watching. Who was the night watchman? Who was the porter? Just hold on to that one for a minute. So here's someone who wants to go to the sheep, and the real owner of those sheep, if he wants anything with them, goes right through the door. No problem in understanding that whatsoever. But somebody else that's not the true shepherd wants to get to the sheep. And he can't come through the door, so he's got to climb up some other way. Ah, that's the thief and the robber. In just a moment, when we start rereading now and go to the other section of our lesson, Jesus says, all whoever came before me were thieves and robbers. All who ever came before. Does he mean every person who lived upon the earth before he came was a thief and a robber? No. He means every person who came claiming to be Messiah was a thief and a robber. And he's saying, I am the true shepherd. And he continues that theme right on through. He's the real shepherd. 
And that raises the point I want to make with you, and it's terribly important and a little surprising. The historian Bendel records that before Jesus of Nazareth came upon the scene of time, 62 claimants, 62, think about that, had put in their appearance to the Jewish people claiming that they were Messiah. That's a shocker. That was a shocker to me. When Jesus came along, he was number 63. And Jesus said, except ye believe that I, not these others, I am he, you'll die in your sin. Now that kind of stretches your mind a little bit. There were a lot of others who came along claiming to be Christ. And one might consider Theodos and Judas, recorded in Acts 5, 35-38. We're not going to take time to look at that in that number. But that's not all. Jesus states in Matthew 24, 25, that before the destruction of Jerusalem, that many false Christs, notice that, many false Christs would arise. Not only were there 62 before him, But he said many would follow, even between the time of his coming and the overthrow of Jerusalem. There would be many, how many? I don't know. Many false Christs. And they would say, lo here and lo there. Don't you go out. They're false. Don't you believe them. But that's not all of it. Even in our own day, they're still popping up. Something over a hundred years ago, Mrs. Ann Lee, and I'll try to be brief with these. We don't want to indulge this too much, but I'm trying to make the point about this that I didn't really realize how prevalent this was. But Mrs. Ann Lee, a quote, prophetess in England, said that she was the Christ. She was Messiah. Now, this poor soul asserted that since Paul said in the Galatian letter, the third chapter, that in Christ Jesus there's neither male nor female, that since God sent a son, a male, into the world to save men, guess what? He also had to send a woman. Yeah, and she was the female Christ of all the foolishness. She was the female Jesus. Now what's even more preposterous is that multitudes of people believed her. Which leads me to point out something else that you already know. There isn't any lie too preposterous for people to believe as long as you wrap it up in religion. They'll believe anything on earth you tell them if you put a little wrapper of religion around it. Some of you might remember the guy a while back that had to raise $4 million or God was going to kill him. And Jesus appeared to him, 900 feet tall. That's the tallest story I ever heard. And I'll tell you, when they have visions, they don't have little bitty ones. The whole outfit is a bunch of liars, and there's no truth in it. And we're still not through with false Christs. Um, One... And we won't get in. I wrote down a bunch more, but we'll just touch on these a little bit just to get this before your mind. Um, And then we had a black Messiah over in Boston. It was Daddy Grace. Did you know that he was the Messiah? That's what he said. And his people set him up in a harem. 
They furnished him a big black Cadillac limousine, and he said that he and God went for long rides in his Cadillac. Not God's Cadillac. God didn't have one. He just hitched a ride with Daddy Grace and rode in his Cadillac. And they just talked and had the best times together. And that's gone. And then there was Father Divine up in Chicago. And then there was Mr. Moon of Korea, who happened to be a good friend of George H.W. Bush. I don't know if you knew that or not. It tells you a lot about George H.W. Bush. And some other world leaders. And he claimed to be Messiah. He claimed to be sinless. And he was going to marry a sinless woman. They were going to repopulate the earth with sinless children. That's how he's going to save the world. Uh, he lived to be 96, year old, 96 years old, died in 2012, not too long ago. So that's the jargon, the racket, the foolishness, the absolute ungodliness, and the perversion of cultism. It's always been around, and it always will be, and there's no end to it because, frankly, people are gullible. Mr. Barnum... Um, I don't think he really did say it. He's reputed to have said that there's a sucker born every minute. And I'll tell you, whoever said it, I don't know who it was, but they're dead right. And there isn't anything that proves it any more than religion. People fall for it. Cable TV prime time is a good sampling of it. And it makes money, uh, but they love every minute of it. And they get just what they pay for. But let's get back. Chased a squirrel a little bit on that one. Sue would have given me problems with that. But let's get back. Jesus said that the true shepherd, the, the Messiah, is the one who enters in the door. What is the door? He didn't identify it, but there isn't any question in the light of what these people understood. When Christ came, he came fulfilling the scriptures. The way that he came was cut out long ago. Those who have made a point of statistically classifying such things have pointed out that there are more than 300 foretellings in the Old Testament, pen portraits of Messiah. 300. For example, in Isaiah 7.14, he would be born of a virgin. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And we can point out a whole lot, but this will suffice for now. This is the one we're going to focus on. And Matthew one twenty one, Matthew tells the account of a woman by the name of Mary who was a virgin and she bore a child. And he says, thus fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah said when he said, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. I know what Isaiah 7.14 is talking about. Now, unbelieving Jews have always said, that the Hebrew word Alma, which is translated virgin, is not correctly translated because the word Alma simply means a young woman. Well, that's true, but it's more than just that. It's true that the word Alma means a young woman, but here a young woman is going to conceive and bear a son. There's no sign about that because that's been happening ever since Adam and Eve. That's not a sign of anything in particular about the Messiah, if you believe Alma is just talking about that. 
And the next thing is, and I want to make a point here because I think it's important, and I don't want to get too far off on this, but I want to make this point. No person is at liberty to take what we call a prophecy or foretelling in the scriptures and say, this is what it means, unless he can find another prophet of God that said that it meant that. I want you to think about that. Sometimes people play fast and loose with it. They'll take a prophecy that hasn't been explained and presume to know what it means. Who told you that's what it meant? And this hits pretty close to home. Who told you that's what it meant? You're not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. And it takes a prophet to interpret a prophet. Well, I've got it here. Isaiah said, behold, a virgin or young woman translated either way. Then we're going to find out what it means because Matthew, an inspired apostle of Jesus Christ, is going to tell us. And he's the one that can do it. He's the one that said, when citing the birth of the Messiah, that he was born of a virgin, thus fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah said. It doesn't matter what I conclude about it. And I'm not arguing about the Hebrew word Alma. Matthew settled how that prophecy was fulfilled. And he, as an inspired inspired apostle, has the credentials and the authority to do it. And I know that this sort of approach wreaks havoc with some of our interpretation of the book of Revelation. A lot of people are enthralled with Revelation. The sectarians have all kinds of fun with Revelation. And they go around proclaiming that they know every scale and every lash of every beast and every wave and every motion of the earth and every star. They have an interpretation for all of it. And unfortunately, there are some brethren that come right along and have theirs too. And let me tell you, unless you've got the inspired word that interprets it, we don't know one thing on earth about what we're talking about unless we have that. Anyone who's ever sat through a study or read some things online, um, you get all kinds of opinions and ideas, and nobody can know for certain, and it just turns into sort of a rap session. There's one thing I do know. The people it was written to knew, and John, in writing Revelation, said, he that has wisdom is to understand. He's writing to them. And he said the things are to be happening shortly. And the person that is to understand is to understand it. That kind of leaves me on the outside because I don't. I'll admit that. I don't. And I don't think we can fully understand Revelation. So join the club if you don't. And don't get me wrong. I believe with all my heart in the divine inspiration of the book of Revelation. And I believe a person can read it and understand that God is good, that he's sovereign, that he's in strength, 
and those who trust him can have full confidence in his control and know that he'll take care of us and that things will be all right for those who trust him. But sometimes when you go down to the nitty-gritty of each apocalyptic symbol and this means this and that means that and this earthquake and that and that rule, and so many people want to focus on those things and it just puts you in a black hole. We don't know anything about it. Now, having said that, I would anticipate that someone would then say, if you don't know what it means, some of it, understand me now, I'm saying there are some apocalyptic things that that we can't know unless we have a prophet interpreting it for us, and we don't always have that. Then how do you know that people are not right when they tell you that over here this means there's, and this is just one example, over here this means there's going to be a thousand year reign of Christ on earth and all the jargon that goes along with that concept. Well, I know that that's not so. Well, if you say you don't know what it teaches, how do you know it doesn't teach that? Well, I've got an answer for that too. If you don't know what it means, how do you know it doesn't mean that? And here's just a small little illustration. Two guys standing on a street arguing religion, and they were on this very point. If you don't know what it means, how do you know it doesn't mean this? And one said to the other, I see your wife standing across the street over there. And the other said, that's not my wife. Well, he said, who is it? He said, how in the world should I know who it is? I've never seen her before. Well, he said, how do you know it's not your wife if you don't know who she is? That's the same logic. When a person knows what the scripture does teach, you can't stick a mud pie in the middle of it and say, that's what the Bible teaches. No, that's not so. It doesn't teach that. I may not know what it is teaching, but it's not teaching that. And you think about it, and we can eliminate a lot of things that people, a lot of the foolishness that comes around just by knowing what it does say. And I'm not obligated, nor are you, to answer everybody's foolishness. But I can deny their foolishness in the light of what the Bible does teach. And the Bible doesn't teach any such thing and doesn't allow that any such thing would be so. It contradicts too many other plain truths. But that's enough. I just wanted to make the point that we need a prophet to interpret a prophet. Okay, now Christ came through the door. He fulfilled the scripture. And just on the virgin birth alone, reason out, not a one of those 62 then, that came before him, the false ones, or the ones that came later that I mentioned, not a one of them could go through that door. So we follow that. The true shepherd of Israel goes through the door. You'll know the shepherd because he enters in by the gate, by the door. But remember, there's a custodian. There's a porter in that picture. And this porter or custodian or gatekeeper is there to keep out the intruder. Who is the porter? In reading the New Testament, we read before Jesus came along um, that the Pharisees were the very people 
who just a little bit before had thought that John the Baptist might be the Messiah. And they sent out ambassadors to inquire of him if he were the Messiah. And he said, I'm not, but he would come after me and is mightier than I, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to lose. It was the purpose of John to open the door, if you please, to Messiah for Israel. He was the harbinger. He was not the Christ. He was the forerunner of Christ. He was the one who testified of Christ. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, as Isaiah identified him. John the Baptist is the one who identified the Christ and the one who tries to climb up some other way has no harbinger. There was no one to announce them and introduce them to the sheep. There was no John the Baptist. And so the second point, but they didn't understand, so the Lord continues in his parable to them. He comes again in verse 7, that Jesus therefore said unto them, again, verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Now we come to another door. There is door number one that we just considered, which is the door through which Messiah comes and proves by coming through that door that he is the Messiah. Now hang that one up and leave it alone for a minute. He comes back again and he says, in this one, I am the door. Now that's not the same door. Here's a change of figure. Suddenly, he doesn't say, I'm the shepherd. Now he says, I'm the door by me. If any man enters in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now he's going to show the benefits and blessings that men seek in Messiah are in him. He is the door for that. And men cannot have those benefits and blessings outside of him. And he presents it in a little different light to them now. I am the door. So there's a door through which Messiah goes. Then there is a door which he is. There's two doors. Don't get them mixed up. There is a door that he is. And then he says that a person through him goes in and goes out and finds pasture. And someone says, you mean people go in and out of Christ as a door? No, it's just a figure. We don't go in and out of Christ, meaning in and out of fellowship with Christ. But in the figure, yes, we go in and out. But why did the sheep go in the door? In order to have protection and shelter. Well, then why would they go out the door? To get pasture and water? So they go in and they go out. Christ is the door. He's the all in all. He's the full provider for the needs of the sheep. In that, he's the door. Now he reverts uh, presently back to the shepherd figure. First he's the shepherd, then he's the door by which the people can have all their needs supplied. Now he comes back and says again in verse 10, the thief now, now that's going to be the false Christ, comes not, but that he, he may steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And now he comes back to the shepherd figure. 
in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. He that is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, behold the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and cares not for the sheep. No problem there. Let's just keep reading. I am the good shepherd, and I know mine own, and mine own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There's another mark of the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. Now, with these identifying marks, the Lord is telling us how, remember, how you're going to know Messiah when you see him. And back to this audience, you have a man who said, I believe you're the one. And the rest of them said, don't believe a word of it. You don't believe that I'm him. No. Well, who would you believe is he? What are you looking for? How would you know Who is Messiah? And he gives us the evidence. And now then he turns to say that I am the good shepherd. I know my unknown. And then he says in verse 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also must I bring, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock. Now I want to know who the sheep are. An interesting point and I want to spend just a moment on it. The word sheep, the terminology, is used many ways in the Scripture because the people, both in Old Testament and New Testament times, were keepers and herders of sheep. Animal husbandry kept them close to the sheep. They understood sometimes sheep are bad. When Isaiah says, all we, all we like sheep are gone astray, And of course, that's illustrating a bad thing about sheep. That's not what the Lord's talking about here, though. I'm illustrating the fact that sheep can mean different things. Sheep in the Old Testament, when Isaiah said, all we like sheep are gone astray, what was he saying? Sheep go astray by following other sheep. That's exactly what he's saying. If you don't know anything about sheep, which I don't know much, only what I've seen um, and, on, and heard and learned about, but we might have to have that explained to us a little bit. Those people didn't have to have it explained, but for those of us that don't know, when sheep are together and they're going to go down, say, to a watering hole in the afternoon, they'll spring out in a single file, one sheep out in front, might come across a tumbleweed or or nothing. It really makes no difference. And that thing will bleat and jump and go through all sorts of gyrations and run off just as if it had seen a lion. Hadn't seen a thing, just a stupid sheep. And every single sheep in the bunch, when it gets there to that point, goes through the same antic. Just a bunch of stupid sheep. That sort of characteristic of sheep is what Isaiah is saying about people. Everyone going astray and doing just what the others do. That's the illustration. We still do it. People are just like sheep in this figure. 
Now, sheep here in this figure isn't talking about that. That's for sure. Remember in the judgment scene, the evil and the righteous will be separated like sheep from goats. The righteous on the right and the goats on the left. The sheep and the goats. So the sheep here in that illustration are saved people, but that's not what he's talking about here. Let's let him tell us what he's talking about. We don't have to guess about it. And this just gets back to studying the scripture. We're looking at it. He tells us what we mean. We just have to read carefully. In those days, when a man kept his sheep in pasture, they grazed upon the tribal land. Your sheep, my sheep, and the neighbor's sheep all grazed together. They were all together. That's a mess of sheep. Now the time comes when I want to take my sheep and go home. Put them in the sheepfold for the night. And you want to take yours. So how do we separate them? That's going to be a mess. But really it isn't. In those days, and they understood this quite well, the old Syrian shepherd or the Jewish shepherd would simply stand and emit a cry. Did you ever hear a fellow call up cows? I saw a contest of this before um, that demonstrated this quite well. And actually a woman won the contest. Um, But you'd have someone who would go out in the backyard and let out a bellow that you could hear a mile away or more. And there would be not one cow in sight. But after a while, you'd slowly come you'd see them slowly come up out of the creek bed. They heard and they understood that guy's voice and they came to him. I could try that and holler until my voice was gone, which is almost gone now, and they'd just go right on grazing and never pay any attention. But they knew they recognized the voice of their owner, and they heeded him. Jesus said in verse 3 of John 10, To him, the shepherd of the sheep, the porter opens, and the sheep hear his voice. Notice that. Hear his voice. Listen again, verse 4. When he has put forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. That's twice. And a stranger they will not follow, but flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. These sheep were smart. They're not dummies. A stranger they will not listen to. Right. But they know the master's voice. Right. And they come. And that's what he said. I'm the good shepherd, and my sheep hear my voice and they follow me because they know my voice and a stranger they will not follow because they do not know his voice that's three times in three verses verse three four and five now then when we drop down to verse eight all that came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep did not hear them that's four times now dropping down to verse 16 other sheep i have which are not of this fold Them also I must bring, and they shall hear 
my voice. Five times in this parable, the Lord has said what he means about sheep. Sheep are people who are willing to be taught. That's exactly who they are. Look at his audience. Here's a man who was willing to be taught, willing to accept. And he said, Lord, I believe. Okay, well, what's wrong with the other bunch? We don't believe because they're not willing to believe. And that's why Jesus said, if you couldn't believe in John 15, verses 22 and 23, if I had not come and spoken unto you, you would have had no sin. Not meaning no sin at all, but not the sin of rejecting me. But now, he said, there is no excuse. If you couldn't know, if you didn't have the chance to know, it would be different. But you had a chance, and you could have heard, but you refused. You wouldn't hear. Now he's saying something about the sheep and this little discourse to these people. And the sheep are people who are willing to listen, willing to be taught. And just a word about that, because that's something that we can listen to, too. Unfortunately, not all people are willing to be taught. And the Bible says quite a bit about that in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the sower. He talks about the seed that fell upon the hard soil, fell upon hearts that did not understand. And that just sort of sounds like, well, they just didn't understand it. But listen, he explains what he means by did not understand. And he quotes Isaiah. Isaiah said, having eyes to see, they will not see. And having ears to hear, they will not hear. Lest seeing with their eyes and hearing with their ears, they should understand in their hearts, and I should heal them. The reason they didn't understand... They shut their eyes and closed their ears, and they wouldn't look. Now, we're responsible for that kind of conduct. A man who stiffens his neck and will not listen to evidence is condemned. There isn't any hope as long as he remains in that condition for that kind of person. And the Lord's talking about that. And he has some in his audience out here that we're looking at. And the sheep are people who are willing to be taught. I said not all people are willing to be taught. And Jesus said in Matthew, the seventh chapter, Give not that which is holy to dogs, neither cast your pearl before swine. And just a quick comment on that. It never occurred to me, but suppose I'm sitting on the couch and I'm reading, I'm in a meditative mood and I'm reading Psalm 23 and I love it. And Bodhi, my dog, is sitting there. And so I nudge him and I say, get this. And so I read Psalm 23. And he just sort of licks himself and goes on sleeping like he does. And so I hit him again and say, get this next part. Now I'm just asking to be bit at this point. Dogs have no appreciation for the aesthetic things. They have no appreciation for what's... That's all he's saying. He's not saying... He's not calling people dogs and pigs. He's saying they'd have no appreciation for it. There are people who have no taste for spiritual things. Leave them alone. 
Sometimes we can't understand what he's saying. We need to quit forcing ourselves on people. That doesn't mean that we don't give the opportunity, but when they make it clear they don't want anything to do with it, and that goes for some wives and some husbands and some parents and some children. We want people to be a Christian so bad, we've got to work them over and lead. But just if they don't want it, you can't force it. And that's exactly what, what Jesus is talking here about here. They have no appetite for it. Preach to him if he wants it. And if he doesn't want it, let him alone. There are some reptiles that do not feed voluntarily in captivity. And they have to be force-fed. You take those things and pump whatever they need into them and then turn them loose and pump something else into them the next time. That's the way they feed them in captivity. And that's pretty tough eating. I don't want the job. But sometimes some preaching makes me think of that. And you get a person in a headlock and you're just going to get it whether you want it or not. And sometimes we just aggravate people by doing that. And I'm just saying, there are people, he's talking about people who are willing to be taught. And there are some people who aren't willing to be taught. Leave them alone. Don't force yourself on them. That doesn't mean you don't look for opportunities when they are willing to be taught. My sheep hear my voice. Right. People willing to be taught. Now quickly in closing... He speaks of the flock. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Other sheep have I which are not of this fold, and they're the Gentiles, not Jews. Out of the Jewish people there will be some willing to be taught. That's good, and he's doing some of it right then. There'll come a time when the Gentiles will have the gospel preached, and some of them will be willing to be taught. Not all of them, but some of them. And he'll take those out of the Jews who are willing to be taught, And he'll take those out of the Gentiles who are willing to be taught, and he'll bring them in, and there'll be one flock willing to be taught. And that's exactly what the sheep are. And that's what he's talking about in the flock now. You don't stay in God's flock rebellious against the God of heaven. His people are the people willing to be taught. Willing to be taught describes his people He doesn't have different kind of people, but people that want to be taught are his people. And that's what the parable is all about. Identifying the Messiah, recognizing those who are his, the sheep, recognizing him, and then be willing to be taught and come to him and receive all the benefits and blessings that you can find. And so this little episode that we look in on 2,000 years ago, we can learn some very important truths for our own lives. And I would extend the invitation now for anyone who is willing to come.